Recorded live. You're listening to the Sham Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. The views of peace of nation talk are not necessarily the views of talk shoes. Sham Radio Productions. Sudahead.com and its sponsors. This is Nation Talk. This is your Sunday evening forum, Nation Talk. Talk is a live public affairs program about the issues concerning you from studios of Savannah, Georgia. In the conversation, call 1724-444-7444. Call ID number 55519-POUND. That's 1724-444-7444. Call ID number 55519-POUND.
Our children will always outgrow us, but for the first time in generations, they may not outlive us. Over the last 25 years, the percent of overweight children has doubled, a problem that could be greatly reduced just by having a place to exercise. Right now, people are working hard to put parks and playgrounds where children will use them. Log on to earthshare.org today and find out how you can help. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. Have you ever dreamed of being a karate master? Well, stop dreaming and start chopping with the Karate Glove. Hi, my name's Molly, inventor of the Karate Glove, and I have just one and a half words for you. Hiya! The Karate Glove chops through anything. Just put it on and instantly chop through wood, Hi-ya! concrete, Hi-ya! brick walls, Hi-ya! trees, Hi-ya! small cars. It can even chop through these eight guitars. It chops things. If I can invent a karate glove, just imagine what you can do. Visit inventnow.org to get started on your invention. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. It's Haya time! Confessions of a Potentially Perfect Parent. Brought to you by AdoptUsKids.org. I might look like an adult, like a person who could possibly be a parent, but I have no idea how to talk like one. And everyone knows that if you want to be a parent, you have to sound good when you say things like, don't make me turn this car around, or because I said so, or don't make me come back there. I don't even really know what those things mean, but I know that I actually believed my parents when they said them to me. How did they manage to sound so convincing? Here we go. Don't make me come back there. No, that's not tough enough at all. Kids can sense weakness. Don't make me come back there. Ooh, yeah, that's better. In fact, that kind of sounded like my dad. Weird. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who would love to listen to you practice your dad voice. Call 1-888-200-4005 or visit adoptuskids.org for more information. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt Us Kids, and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. The views of Peace of Nation Talk are not necessarily the views of Talk Show, Jam Radio Productions, SodaHead.com, and its sponsors. This is Nation Talk. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left Cause I've been laughing and laughing so long that Even my mama thinks that my mind is gone But I ain't never crossed a man that didn't deserve it Me be treated like a punk, you know that's unheard of You better watch how you're talking and where you're walking Or you and your homies might be lying to talk I really hate the trip, but I got a low as they croak, I see myself in the pistol smoke. Fool, I'm the kind of need a little homie. Wanna be like on my knees in the night, saying prayers in the street
the situation they got me facing. I can't live a normal life. I was raised by the shit, so I gotta be there with the hood team. Too much television watching got me chasing dreams. I'm an educated fool with money on my mind. Got my tin in my hand and a gleam in my eye. I'm a low-down gangster, set-tripping banker. And my homies is down, so don't arouse my anger. Fool, death ain't nothing but a heartbeat away. I'm living life to a die. What can I say? I'm 23 now, but will I live to see 24? The way things are going, I don't know. Tell me why are we?
One in six Americans will get sick from food poisoning this year, and roughly 3,000 will die. But you can keep your family safer by cleaning with soap and water as you go. Learn more about this and other important information. Check your steps at foodsafety.gov. That's foodsafety.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Hi, everybody. Right now, there are American troops serving in harm's way and standing sentry around the world. There are veterans who served honorably in times of war and peace and often came home bearing the invisible and visible wounds of war. They may not speak the loudest about their patriotism. They let their actions do that. Right time to think of these men and women and thank them for their service and sacrifice is every day of the year. Memorial Day, which we'll observe Monday, is different. It's the day we remember those who never made it home, those who never had the chance to take off the uniform and be honored as a veteran. Today we stop to reflect with gratitude on the sacrifice of generations who made us more prosperous and free, and to think of the loved ones they left behind. Remembering them, searing their stories and their contributions into our collective memory, an awesome responsibility is one that all of us share as citizens. As Commander-in-Chief, I have no more solemn obligation than leading our men and women in uniform, making sure they have what they need to succeed, making sure we only send them into harm's way when it's absolutely necessary. If they make the ultimate sacrifice, they give their very lives, we have to do more than honor their memory. We have to be there for their families. Over the years, Michelle and I have spent quiet moments with the families of the fallen, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. They've shared their pain, but also their pride in the sacrifices their loved ones made. Hi, everybody. And that's just one of the um, um, what that was. His weekly address that he he's done during his eight years. The president has has been criticized a lot for his performance and what he and tonight we're just going to bring you the Obama years. The president has felt like the, 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 the Republican Party mostly stalling him from doing what he needs to do. Here's a NPR interview with President Obama about Obama's years. Uh, you've been told that we are doing a documentary. We went across a good part of the country to places where you've given speeches uh, over the years to just talk with people about how their lives have changed. Yeah, and that was great. I'm, I'm going to listen to this one. That's great. I appreciate that. Yeah. And that's the beginning of our discussion right. here, although we'll range a little bit farther. Um, 
this caused me to go back and look at some of your speeches. Mm -hmm. And there was one in St. Charles, Missouri in 2010 in which you said, let's face it, people have lost faith in government, Mm -hmm. that it started before you were president, and it's getting worse. Do the events of this year suggest that it's getting even worse? I'm not sure if it is getting even worse. I think that steady growth in people's cynicism about institutions generally, government in particular. And some of it is justified because we've got a Congress that's been dysfunctional now for quite some time and can't seem to organize itself to solve problems. Uh, You now have a Republican Congress. They control both chambers, and they can't even pass their own agenda, much less uh, pass uh, something that has bipartisan support. And at a time when there are a lot of big issues out there, uh, people uh, feel as if uh, things aren't working the way they should. Um, Having said that, not all of the cynicism is justified. Even without Congress uh, cooperating, uh, we've been able to make big progress on a whole range of issues. And uh, I think people are seeing that when government makes smart decisions, it actually has a significant impact. And part of my hope during the course of uh, this election is that it's clarifying that people say, all right, here's what each party stands for, here's what each presidential candidate and various congressional candidates stand for. If we're going to move forward in a democracy, then the ultimate arbiter of making things work is the voter uh, and uh, putting people in charge who are uh, serious about uh, America's business as opposed to uh, just uh, playing to uh, various narrow constituency groups. If some of the cynicism is not justified, are you concerned that voters this year will go too far in overturning things? You know, ultimately I have confidence in our voters. Uh, you know, if you look at American history, there have been times where We've taken some tough turns, uh, primarily fed by fear and disruptions and dislocations, uh, but with a very substantial exception of the Civil War. Uh, Generally speaking, uh, the democratic process muddled through, and we emerged better and stronger than we were before. And I have no doubt that the same thing will happen this time. Uh, But I, I do think that part of what has changed during the course of my presidency, I've seen it, is the splintering of media, the power of social media and the Internet uh, has turbocharged what previously might have been marginal views or marginal groups, uh, has made it harder to uh, generate consensus because people aren't looking at the same set of facts. They're I've said this before, if you're watching Fox News, you have a different set of facts than if you're reading the New York Times uh, editorial page. And and that, I think, has led or, or increased the polarization. And that makes it harder for people to sort through uh, who's telling the truth and how we actually get stuff done. Let me ask though, Mr. President, you've still got the biggest megaphone. Yeah. People can even see you on Fox News. Yeah. 
if you've been president for almost seven and a half years and people have still no faith in government, are you accountable for that? Well, look, as a general proposition, I don't spend a lot of time looking at polls. But what's interesting is, is right now, there's a poll you like to I'm look actually, at. Well, right right now, I think the majority of the American people think that I'm doing a good job. That does not necessarily give me a lot of comfort if I can't move this Congress forward. Uh, and the question then becomes, and I've heard some people in, in the Republican Party suggest that um, in some fashion I'm responsible for what's happened to them. And the rise of Trump and the dysfunction that you see uh, in their party generally. What I would say is that I came into office wanting to work on a bipartisan basis, and if you've looked at my old speeches, uh, you would see that. Uh, they made the determination that it was good politics to oppose everything that I did. The problem was is that by opposing everything I did, even things that previously they had been for, it pushed their party further and further to the right. Um, and look, at, at the risk of sounding partisan, uh, but I, I believe, uh, if you look at uh, the facts, uh, that this is a pretty accurate description. When we talk about dysfunction in government, it's not as if both parties are equally dysfunctional. Uh, the Democrats have a pretty well-thought-through agenda. When we were governing in the first two years of my administration, we got a lot done. We were probably as productive as any uh, any Congress uh, in 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, you have a particular problem in the Republican Party right now that needs to get sorted through. Now, that's not unique in the annals of American history. There have been times where the Democrats were wrapped around the axle and extreme wings uh, were setting the agenda. Uh, and I think the Republicans will get out of this. Uh, I don't think that it is something that uh, uh, will last the next 10, 15, 20 years. But uh, right now, at least, uh, partly in reaction to my presidency and, and the political decisions that they made, uh, they find themselves having uh, created an atmosphere in which uh, even Somebody like Paul Ryan is viewed as not sufficiently conservative, or if, if he does just some of the basic work of governance, that somehow he's betrayed uh, you know, the base and, and uh, is, is decried as uh, a Republican in name only. And, and when you have that kind of environment, it's very hard to get the kind of cooperation that is necessary for us to solve problems that people are concerned about and that I'm assuming in the course of your conversation, uh, conversations, uh, they've raised repeatedly. Let me ask about one of those concerns. Mm -hmm. In Kansas, uh, we spoke with a woman named Heather Gray, mm -hmm. who said, 16 years ago, I was making $10 an hour. Right. Today, she said, I make $10 an hour. The problem of stagnant wages, of course, did not start with your presidency, yeah. but it hasn't improved much. Right. Why not? Well, we've got some long-term trends that we have to battle. Uh, and when I came into office, we were in the midst of the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. We have successfully dug ourselves out of that hole. And the country has, but wages have not improved. I'm, I'm going to answer your question. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
just give it a little context here. Okay. Right? So we had unemployment at 10%. It's now below 5 We had uh, a housing market that had completely collapsed. It's now normalized. Uh, we had uh, a situation in which people had lost uh, trillions of dollars in, in wealth in their 401ks, and they've recovered. In fact, Americans have lost, uh, gotten back about $30 trillion worth of wealth since, uh, since I came into office. So by every measure, the economy has improved. But the long-term trends that had occurred before I took office and have continued is a combination of globalization and automation leading to more downward pressure on wages because you need fewer workers to make a certain amount of stuff. And entire job sectors being shrunk or eliminated. More and more people going into the service sector. And in the service sector, historically, wages have been lower. And that's all been compounded by some very specific policies, both at the federal and the state level, that's made it harder for workers to organize and get more leverage to get uh, higher wages. This is why we fought for higher minimum wages. This is why we fought for making it easier uh, to collectively bargain. This is why I think it is so important that as we move forward, if we are going to benefit from all the huge productivity increases and uh, you know, efficiencies that arise out of the global supply chain and automated everything, then we're going to have to redesign that social compact to make sure that everybody's getting a decent wage. And that is possible to do. It's not as if we need uh, uh, a radical restructuring of the economy. If, if we had a minimum wage that required everybody to get uh, – be above poverty if they're working full-time, that would go a long way towards alleviating some of the trends that you've talked about. And in fact, we've seen wage growth now begin to occur over the last uh, couple of years, but it's not happening as fast as it should. There is a writer for the Financial Times, Philip Stevens, mm -hmm. who wrote something interesting after Britain voted to leave the European Union last week. Right. He wrote in a column, globalization is not working that it may make countries richer, but the majority of people are not benefiting. He was writing about Britain, but you mentioned globalization in the context of the United States. Yeah. Is he right? Globalization isn't working? I think he's right that what you're seeing across the advanced economies is that when you have globalization and suddenly there's competition from everywhere, that empowers people who have a lot of skills, can use the Internet, suddenly they have access to all the markets. And what that means is if you're very good at something, if you are LeBron James or you are Seinfeld or you are Steve Jobs, uh, then suddenly you can leverage your skills in ways that you could never do before. If you are a manual worker and are doing work that can be replaced not just by a lower wage worker somewhere else, but more frequently by a machine, then you're in a tougher spot because uh, you now are competing against the entire world instead of just the people who live 
around you. And that's why it's so important for us to think about how do we make sure that everybody is participating in that global economy. If you continue on the current trends, then what you're going to see is a continuing increase in inequality. And that is not going to be economically sustainable because it turns out that the economy works best when everybody has a stake in it and workers have money in their pockets and are spending it, and that's good for business. But it's also not politically sustainable because people start getting frustrated and they start getting resentful. And I think you see that somewhat in uh, the Brexit vote. You see some of it in uh, both the Sanders campaign and the the Trump campaign, people feeling as if we are potentially being left behind. Now, the, the question then is, what's the prognosis? Or, or, or what's, what's the cure to this whole thing? And the notion is that, from my perspective, we're not going to suddenly eliminate the global supply chain. We're not going to uh, disentangle the world economy. It's just too integrated now by virtue of technology and the Internet. And so what we have to do is to make sure that wages around the world are beginning to rise, that environmental standards around the world are beginning to rise, that within our own countries we are providing the education that people need to compete in this global economy with new skills for the new industries that are out there, that we invest more in things like infrastructure that make us competitive uh, and also, by the way, can't be shipped away. The the issue is not that uh, the world's shrinking in globalization is inherently I actually think that over time it can raise everybody's looking standards and create a more peaceful world. You listen to Nature Talk. We'll return in a moment. We got a mess of used cars. What can we do for you? Uh, we're looking for um... something cute. Well, here's a beauty, a 99 model with a moonroof. As a bonus, we'll throw in a leaking gas tank. You could be driving and kaboom! Adds that zing of excitement. You got any other cars? Wouldn't it be great if you could be warned of life's risks? If you have diabetes, you can. There's a simple blood test called A1C that can help measure your risk of complications from diabetes. Why is it important? Because more than 600 people every day die from diabetes and its complications. If your A1C is above 7, your doctor can show you how to lower it. If you have diabetes, know your risk. Know your A1C. Ask your doctor. Or for more information, go to www.diabetesa1c.org or call 1-877-TEST-A1C. Brought to you by the American Diabetes Association, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation International, and the Ad Council. Our children will always outgrow us, but for the first time in generations, they may not outlive us. Over the last 25 years, the percent of overweight children has doubled, a problem that could be greatly reduced just by having a place to exercise. Right now, people are working hard to put parks and playgrounds where children will use them. Log on to earthshare.org today and find out how you can help. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. 
You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. The views of Peter Nation Talk are not necessarily views. I'll talk to you. Jam Radio Production, com, and its sponsors. This is Nation Welcome back. Well, you, we're, you're listening to <laughs> Nation Talk here on Talk Show and Jam Radio. During this hour, we, talk, we are talking about the Obama years. We're listening to a conversation with President Obama on NPR. Um, as I said in the beginning, there have been a lot of criticisms about Obama administration and how he had how he's conducted uh, the people's business. As you know, his presidency began at noon Eastern Time on January 20, 2009 when Obama became the 44th President of the United States. Obama, which is a who was a Democrat, was a United States Senator from Illinois at the time of his victory over Republican Senator John McCain of Arizona in the 2008 presidential election. Obama is the first African-American president, the first non-white president, and the first to have been born in Hawaii. His running mate, Senator Joe Biden of Delaware, took office as vice president on the same day. During his first term of action addressing addressed the global financial crisis that you heard um, earlier and included a major stimulus package, a partial extension of the Bush tax cuts. Administration to reform health care, a major financial regulation, regulation reform bill, and the end of a major U.S. military presence in Iraq. Also, he appointed Supreme Court Justices Elena Kagan and Sonia Mayo, the latter of who became the first Hispanic American on the Supreme Court. Democrats controlled both House of Congress until Republicans won the majority in the House in the 2010 elections. Now, notice the change. Notice the, the change from the first beginning of it in 2009 and then in 2010 the House of Representatives Republicans won the majority of the House of Representatives in 2010. 
following the elections, Obama and, co- and congressional representatives with Republicans engaged in a protracted standoff over government spending levels and the debt ceiling. Obama won his second term in 2012, making him the 17th person to win two presidential elections in his second term. Obama took steps to combat climate change, signing a major international climate agreement and executive order to limit carbon emissions. Obama also presided over the implementing of the Affordable Care Act and other legislation passed in his first term, and he negotiated uh, rapprochements with Iran and Cuba. No American soldiers in, in Afghanistan failed drastically during Obama's second term. Though the United States currently plans to leave soldiers in Afghanistan until, until at least 2017, Republicans took control of the Senate in 2014 election, and Obama continued to grapple with congressional Republicans over, over government spending, immigration, judicial nominations, and other issues. Obama's presidency is scheduled to end the inauguration of Republican President-elect Donald J. Trump on January 20th, 2017. Now, here are some of the things that was that the president uh, was tackling during his during his administration. Uh, responding to the Great Recession, the American recovery and reinvestment act, the automobile industry bailout. He had a lot. He he took a lot of flack over that. This is economic policy actions. Wall Street reform, credit card act of 2009, Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform, Consumer Protection Act. He, he took on a lot of flack on that. Taxation and spending. Tax relief, unemployment insurance reauthorization and job creation act of 2010, budget control act of 2011, American Taxpayers Relief of 2012, and a bipartisan budget act of 2015. 2013 debt ceiling crisis, government shutdown, continuing appropriations act 2014, bipartisan budget act of 2013. There are other domestic policy actions, health care reform, patient, patient protection and af- and Affordable 
Care Act, Health Care and Education Reconciliation Act of 2010. Uh, in the education, race to the top, competitive grant program, Every Student Succeeds Act, Climate Change, Clean Clean Power Plan, Immigrant Immigration Policy, another another um, another one that he been grappled with with what they during that time he had uh, problems with the Congress with that. Deferred action for childhood arrivals, deferral action for parents of Americans, which was blocked by the Supreme Court. Uh, and then the social issues, the social policy, uh, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, Matthew Shepard Act, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Repeal Act of 2010, Intelligence and Surveillance Policy, uh, Patriot Act Extension 2011 2015, the USA Federal Act. And Foreign policy actions, free trade agreements, United States, Colombia free trade agreement, Panama United States trade promotion promotion agreement, South Korea United States free trade agreement, Trans Pacific Partnership signed but not ratified, arms control, New Star, climate change, Paris Agreement, Iraq. Withdrawal of U.S. troops from Iraq, American-led intervention in Iraq, 2014 to now, Afghanistan war in Afghanistan, 2001 to 14, 2015 to now, partial withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan, apartment with Cuba and Iran. United States Cuban Thaw Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with Iran Other Military Actions Drone Strikes in Pakistan 2011 Military Intervention in Libya Death of Osama bin Laden Military Intervention Against ISIL Supreme Court Nominations Of course Sonia Sonomaya, Elena Kagan, and Mary Garden, which was not confirmed. Uh, transition period inauguration. Presidential transition period began following Obama's election to the presidency in November 2008, though Obama had chosen Chris Liu to begin planning for the transition in, in 2008. The Obama-Biden transition project was co-chaired by John Podesta, Valerie Jarrett, and Pete Rouse. During the transition period, Obama announced nominations for his cabinet and administration, which as you know, that President-elect Trump is doing at, the, at this time. 
through his transitional period um, at this point, at this moment. Uh, during the transition period, uh, Congressman, uh, okay, in November 2008, Congressman Graham Emanuel accepted Obama's offer to serve as White House Chief of Staff. Obama was inaugurated 20, January 20th, 2009, succeeded George W. Bush. Obama officially assumed the president's office, the presidency, at 12 p.m. Eastern Time and completed the oath at 12.05 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. He delivered his inaugural address immediately following his oath. Obama's transition team was highly complimentary of the Bush administration's outgoing transition team, particularly with regards to national security and some elements of the Bush-Obama transition were later codified, codified into law. As you know, we, we mentioned Rahm um, Emanuel, who is now the mayor of Chicago. He was, he's also a, a good friend of the president. Um, he had two Secretary of States, Hillary Clinton, of course, in 2009 to 2013, and John Kerry, who's presently serving. Secretary of Treasury, Tim Gaither, who served 2009 to 2013. Jack Lew is serving the term, presently serving the term. They had one, two, three, four Secretary of Defense. Bob Gates, who served 2006-2011. Leon Pinella, 2011-2013. Chuck Hagel, 2013-2015. And now Ash Carter, who's, who's presently serving. Eric Holder, who served as Attorney General 2009-2015, Loretta Lynch is presently serving as Attorney General. Uh, Secretary of Education, um, Ann Duncan, 2009-2016, John King is, is presently serving. Uh, Let's see now, what else? Now, I saw something in here, too. Um, okay, here it is. The first 100 days, right after he took his oath, Obama's chief of staff, Ram Emanuel, issued an order suspending last-minute regulations and executive order pushed by outgoing President George W. Bush. Some of the first actions of Obama's presidency focused reversing measures taken 
by the Bush administration following the September 11 attacks. In his first week in office, Obama signed Executive Order 
a $787 billion bill combined tax breaks with spending on infrastructure projects, extension of where welfare benefits and education. And the economy, just to name a few, Another thing he was he he also was trying to do and the federal minimum wage increase during the presidency to to seven twenty five per hour. And the second term, Obama advocated for another increase twelve dollars per hour. The Obama administration doubled the extension under which an employee could have could afford overtime pay for certain salaried employees from twenty three thousand six hundred sixty to forty seven thousand four hundred seventy six and tie that threshold to inflation. Now, for what I've been for what I've heard the president elect is thinking about dropping the minimum wage back to where it was. Not raising it, but keeping it as it is. Now, if he does that, he says it's going it's going to mess up the business people. The business people are going to they have to raise it, and it's going to probably, they're going to lose money. I don't see how they're going to lose money. Really, honestly, my my thing is, for people who who are not getting ten dollars an hour, should get more. They should get at least ten dollars an hour because. We got because food in these supermarkets are ridiculously high. It is too high, and sometimes we and sometimes people cannot afford to eat to eat right. Which which comes which the food stamps program comes in. I've also been hearing. I'm not sure it's going to be it's going to be set in stone. But could it be that the president-elect may just try to cut the food stamp program and other benefits and and the other benefits that uh, that the other programs that we have, he's talking about doing some cutting. What kind of cuts? It remains to be seen. In, in it remains to be seen, and we'll see how it's going to be in the first hundred years, in the first first hundred days. 
first hundred years, first hundred days, that is, of, of the Trump White House. I'm praying that it won't be done. But if it, but if it, but if it does happen, brace yourselves. Be prepared. This is Nation Talk. I'll talk to you at Jam Radio. Where do baby smiles come from? No, it's not gas. They're imitating the monkeys. So says evolution. That's next on today's Creation Moment. And now our Creation Moments host, Ian Taylor. Did you know it's practically impossible to laugh without smiling at the same time? Will you try it sometime? Or you can make laughing sounds without smiling, but you can't laugh for real. Well, if you're anything like me, you just might laugh out loud when you hear what evolutionists are now telling us about why babies smile and laugh. According to evolutionists at Kyoto University, babies smile not because they are amused or because they are trying to communicate with their parents. Babies smile for the same reason that monkeys smile, to facilitate the development of cheek muscles, enabling humans, chimpanzees, and Japanese monkeys to produce smiles, laughs, and grimaces. And they add, spontaneous smiles don't express feelings of pleasure in chimpanzees and Japanese monkeys. Rather, the smiles are more similar to submissive signals and grimaces rather than smiles. According to study author Masaki Tomonaga, we can infer that the origin of smiles goes back at least 30 million years, when old world monkeys and our direct ancestors diverged. Really now, do evolutionists honestly expect us to believe this? There's nothing funny about evolutionary nonsense like this. The reason we smile, even when we're babies, is because God created human beings as emotional creatures capable of expressing an incredibly wide range of feelings. When's the last time you thanked God for such a wonderful gift? Creation Moments exists to glorify God by presenting evidence for the literal truth of the Bible. For more information, visit our website at creationmoments.com and join us again for another Creation Moment, proclaiming evidence of God's truth. We are talking about our world today. Oh, and someone's on the line. Hi, I'm Jacqueline. Welcome, Jacqueline. How old are you? You sound so young. I'm eight. Oh, wow. I assume you're a student, right? Yes, from Jefferson Elementary. And I have a question. Sure. And what's your question? We all know the Earth has seven continents that currently carry 193 countries. Those continents make up 29% of the Earth's surface, meaning that the vast majority of our planet, 71%, is comprised of water. Taking into consideration man automatically adapts to environmental conditions, why is it that I need to take swimming lessons? Are you ready for kids who eat healthy? Good nutrition can lead to great things. To find out how a healthy lifestyle can help your child succeed, go to MyPyramid.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the Ad Council and USDA.
Now, this is the opinion of Nation Talk. Excuse me. The views of the views of Nation Talk are not necessarily the views of Talk Show, Generated Productions, Tonyhead.com, and sponsors. This is Nation Talk. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Be happy. In every life we have some trouble. When you worry, you make it double. Don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy now. Let's be clear about something. Barack Obama has been one of the most consequential presidents in recent American history. You can't say it, but you know it's true. In the past eight years, he has completely transformed the American health care system. He got tough reforms to Wall Street passed after the biggest financial crisis in decades. He appointed two of the four women to ever serve on the Supreme Court, both of whom were part of the historic decision legalizing same-sex marriage. He put in place the toughest climate regulations in American history. He opened the U.S. to Cuba for the first time in half a century. And he reached a peaceful settlement of the nuclear standoff with Iran that lasted for a decade before he took office. You can celebrate or bemoan these accomplishments. Liberals will think they're great. Conservatives will think they're awful. But it's hard to deny that they're big deals. So where do we start? Obamacare is a big deal. For at least 100 years, the big goal of American liberals on, on domestic policy was to get a national health insurance program done. A lot of countries implemented universal health care in the 20th century, the UK, Canada, France, but the U.S. always lagged behind. There were attempt after attempt after attempt by American progressives of both parties uh, to try to get the U.S. to where everyone else was going. And each of those attempts failed. Teddy Roosevelt failed. FDR failed. Truman failed. Nixon failed. Carter failed. Clinton failed. And then Obama succeeded. And he established for the first time in American history that health care is a right. The plan still leaves millions uninsured, but it laid a foundation for universal health care. To understand what Obama did for foreign policy, you kind of have to go back uh, to a moment in 2007, um, this moment in particular. Would you be willing to meet separately, without precondition, during the first year of your administration in Washington or anywhere else with the leaders of Iran, Syria, Venezuela, Cuba, and North Korea in order to bridge the gap that divides our countries? I would. Uh, and the reason is this, that the notion that somehow not talking to countries uh, is punishment to them, uh, which has been the guiding uh, diplomatic principle of this administration is ridiculous. So this was considered a gaffe. Uh, the safe thing that you were supposed to say is, yeah, diplomacy is great, we'll talk to some people, but there have to be preconditions. No preconditions is silly. And this is what other Democrats did say at the time. But he didn't accept that. And with two of the countries listed in that question, Iran and Cuba, Obama led some of the biggest changes to those diplomatic relationships in recent history. I'd be remiss in not mentioning the importance of the fact that Obama is the first black president. After eight years, it seems obvious to point out. 
but the history of America is a history of learning to deal with racial diversity and with the legacy of white supremacy. In a very America is the history of race relations. There's a famous photo uh, that still hangs in the White House of a black toddler in the White House, President Obama's hair, because he thought it was great that the president had hair that looked like his. It seems cheesy, but it really is a big deal that a generation of black children are going to grow up knowing that they could be the president. Overall, it's a pretty extensive track record. So you can generally divide American presidents into two camps. There are the ones who were maybe a little good, maybe a little bad, but were sort of forgettable. Grover Cleveland, Benjamin Harrison, Zachary Taylor, William Howard Taft, Bill Clinton. And then there are the ones who were hugely consequential, either for good, FDR, ending the Depression, winning World War II, Lincoln, winning the Civil War, George Washington, establishing what a president is. Uh, or for ill, Andrew Johnson destroying Reconstruction and, and subjugating black people for a century, Andrew Jackson committing genocide or ethnic cleansing against the Southeast Indians. I think it's hard to argue that Obama is in the sort of iffy eh camp rather than the big consequential camp. He did a lot. He accomplished a lot. And I think in the next 10 or 20 years, when we have a bunch more presidents, many more of whom are, are sort of all right, or maybe slightly bad, but, but ultimately forgettable, we're going to look back and realize what a rare thing a presidency that active and that accomplished is. Sorry, I had to cancel a few times. My mouth pad broke last week, and I had to get my great aunt some diabetes shoes. And, uh, you know what, Zach, it's no problem. I, I mean, I have to say, when I, when I heard that, like, people actually watch this show, I was, I was actually pretty surprised. Hi. Welcome to another edition of Between Two Ferns. I'm your host, Zach Galatinakis. And uh, my guest today is uh, Barack Obama, President Barack Obama. Good to be with you, Zach. First question. In 2013, you pardoned the Turkey. What do you have planned for 2014? We'll probably pardon another turkey. We we do that at every Thanksgiving. Was that depressing to you, seeing as uh, one turkey kind of taken out of circulation, uh, turkey you couldn't eat? So how does this work? Do you send uh, Ambassador Rodman to North Korea on your behalf? I read somewhere that you'd be sending Hulk Hogan to Syria, or is that more of a, a job for Tanya Harding? Exactly. He's, he's not our ambassador. What should we do about North Ikea? while we move on. I have to know, what is it like to be the last black president? Seriously? What's it like for this to be the last time you ever talk to a president? It, it must kind of stink, though, that you can't run, you know, three times. You no, know? actually, I think it's a good idea. Uh, you know, if I ran a third time, it'd be sort of like doing a third hangover movie. It didn't really work out very well, did it? Now, I have to say that I've seen this show before, and... Uh, some of the episodes have probably been a little bit better than this. You know, for example, the one with Bradley Cooper, that was a great Bradley show. Bradley Cooper. He kind of carried that movie, didn't he? Which, which film are you speaking of? Uh, the, the, those uh, Hangover movies. Uh, he, he, basically, he carried them. Yeah, everybody loves Bradley. Good for him. Good-looking guy. Being like that in Hollywood, that's easy. Tall, handsome, that's easy. Be short, fat, and smell like Doritos and try to make it Hollywood. 
Is it going to be hard in two years when uh, you're no longer president and people will stop letting you win at basketball? How, how does it feel having a three-inch vertical? It's a three-inch horizontal. So, Where are you planning on building a presidential library in Hawaii or your home country of Kenya? Because both places seem like they would be... Zach, that's a ridiculous question. Well, you know, I mean, not to bring up the birth certificate thing, but you really never did really produce your real Where's your birth certificate? Why don't you show it to us right now? I don't want to show anybody my birth certificate because it's embarrassing. What's embarrassing about it? My weight on it, it says that I was born 7 pounds, 800 ounces. You know what I would do if I were president, Mr. President? I would make same-sex divorce illegal, then see how bad they want it. I think that's why you're not president, and that's a good thing. You said if you had a son, you would not let him play football. What makes you think that he would want to play football? What if he was a nerd like you? Do you think a woman like Michelle would marry a nerd? I, why don't you ask her whether she thinks I'm a nerd? Could I? No, I'm not going to let her near you. So do you go to any websites that are .coms or .nets, or do you mainly just stick with uh, .gov? No, actually, we uh, go to .gov. Have you heard of healthcare.gov? Here we go. Okay, let's get this out of the way. What did you come here to plug? Well, first of all, uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, I wouldn't be with you here today if I didn't have something to plug. Have you heard of the Affordable Care Act? Oh, yeah, I heard about that. That's the thing that doesn't work. Why would you get the guy that created the Zune to make your website? Healthcare.gov works great now, and millions of Americans have already gotten health insurance plans, and what we want is for people to know that you can get affordable health care. Most young Americans... Right now, they're not covered, uh, and the truth is, is that they can get coverage all for uh, what it costs you to, to pay your cell phone bill. Is this what they mean by drones? The, the point is that a lot of young people, they think they're invincible. Did you say in, in, invisible? Because, uh, no, no, not, not invisible, invincible, okay. me, meaning that they don't think they can get hurt. i that nobody could be invisible. I understand that. If they get that health insurance, it can really make a big difference. And they've got till March 31st to sign up. I don't have a computer, so how does... Well, then you can call 1-800-318-2596. I don't have a phone. I'm off the grid. I don't want you people like looking at my text, if you know what I mean. Midterm elections heading into the final stretch. Any Democratic slip-up, any hint of a Democratic scandal could tip things in favor of Republicans. And earlier today, with this headline... At first glance, it looked like the Drudge Report had placed the president at the center of a sex scandal. It read, man warns president not to touch girlfriend. But when you clicked on the link, it took you to a video of the president voting early at his polling place in Chicago, where shortly after the president headed into his voting booth, an absolutely incredible scene unfolded. The boyfriend of the woman voting next to him walked past the president and jokingly said, don't touch my girlfriend. The following exchange is pretty incredible.
You know, I, I kind of want to. I, I kind of want to do this a little different because I, I want to just sit and talk with you, just have some fun, just two guys just talking about it, you know, just life. And then at the same time, can I tell you this? In the words of my old friend, this is pretty much the bomb diggity for me because I'm interviewing <laughs> the president of the United States on my own talk. So that's really good. Well, How you been, though? It is great to see you, Steve. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. And, you know, as you can see, it's Christmas uh, here in the White House, and uh, it took me a long time putting all these decorations up. <laughs> you know, in between dealing with Afghanistan, and <laughs> you've been hanging balls uh, on the tree. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Been up all night. Do you Christmas shop? We do one Christmas trip uh, on Small Business Saturday. I usually go out there with the girls, and last couple of years we've gone to bookstores. Okay. Because the nice thing about a bookstore is you can cover a lot of ground. You can get books for, you know, the six-year-old niece. You can get books for your mother-in-law. Yeah. 
And so, you know, we do a lot of shopping there. Um, now that I think about it, I should have, I guess, bought some of your books yeah. to give out as gifts. Yeah. So I, I apologize for that. Well, you know, they're still for sale. We're pretty important. No, you're wrong. I, you know, uh, the first lady was on my show, uh-huh. and she told us, she said that you're a little difficult to shop for. Is that true? Well, that, that's probably true. My whole attitude is the older you get, the harder you are to shop for because if you wanted it, you would have bought it anyway. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I remember I used to you know, have to shop for my grandmother, you know, uh, who, who's passed now, but, you know, helped raise me. I loved her to death. But every Christmas I'd be thinking, now, what does she want? <laughs> and, you know, so I'd end up buying her some little knick-knack or something. She'd open it up and she'd say, oh, well, that's nice. And then you'd see it off in the corner somewhere <laughs> with, the other stuff <laughs> with the other stuff that I bought. So uh, kids are easier to shop for. But it is also true that Michelle has been trying to get me to wear more color and try to get me to be a little less conservative in my dressing style. Um, so she probably wants me to follow you know, your lead. But I was saying, this is, this is the most conservative I've ever seen. This is my presidential yeah. interview suit. It looks sharp. Only have one. <laughs> Put it on in the tight. Because <laughs> I had planned on doing this interview six years ago. <laughs> we hadn't quite got there yet. Hey, I heard a rumor too, man, that your grandmother and my mother have met in heaven and they're watching. They're watching right now? And I think they're pretty proud. Probably. Well, I think they're definitely uh, looking down on us because you know, one of the things that you realize is how much any success you had depended on some critical people who were there really? at critical times in your life. Really? You just don't uh, succeed in any endeavor unless you've got a team that's been supporting you. Uh, and that's part of my political philosophy. It's really based on my own experience, which right. was if somebody hadn't been out there looking out for me, starting with my mom, my grandmother, my mm-hmm. grandfather, um, then I wouldn't have made it. You know, it, it wasn't because of, of my brilliance or something that uh, these things happen. It, it, it had to do with people investing in you. And so we've got to make sure we're investing in the next generation just like somebody invested in us. Yeah. Pretty good job. Um, yeah. Well, you know, the, the effort you're putting out there, that's for sure. Right. I think it's happening. Right. Well, it starts with your own kids, obviously. So, you know, Michelle and I, we always say that as important as our jobs are as president and first lady, our most important job is, is mom and dad. And, you know, the girls are getting old enough now where they don't need the 24-7 yeah. uh, monitoring, uh, and they've turned out to be great kids. But uh, How old are they now? Malia's 15. She'll be 16 in, in July. And uh, Sasha's 12, will be 13 in June. Um, they're Maybe. doing great. But uh, they grow up so fast. Is she talking about driving? Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, the good news is that uh, although in <coughs> Chicago you can get your permit when you're 15, right. D.C. is 16. But, but this shows that she, she may have potential as a lawyer sometimes. She said, you know, aren't we technically still residents <laughs> of Illinois? And I, and I explained, yeah, but we don't live there now, so you're going to have to. Yeah. Abide by the D.C. rule. 
but she's doing great. They're both wonderful young ladies, and, and I give Michelle all the credit. I, I always say in our household, uh, you know, Michelle's management, I'm labor. You know, I, I basically do yeah. what I'm told by her, uh, but she's always got a, a, a great game plan, and, and the girls are thriving as a result. Are you going to teach them to drive? Uh, probably not. You know, I have seen enough parents try to teach their kids to drive, and the combination of anxiety <laughs> and hollering yeah. and, you know, both sides just leaving the car unhappy after the fact, I figure it is better to, to you know, I just give, it. Give, give it to a professional. So you did that. Yeah. How would that go? Um, I took it to a parking lot. I set up the cones. Right. And I'm teaching them everything. She hits the cones a few times, and I kept getting on. I said, baby, you keep hitting the cones. She said, Dad, they're just cones. <laughs> it's nothing to do with that. could be the fender of a car. So she told me it's just, just a cone. Now, why did you decide that you needed to do it? Was it just a point of pride that yeah. I'm going to teach my child how to drive? Yeah, I, I thought that was good because I taught my oldest boys how to do it. Okay. And my daughter's a little bit different because i got to keep her occupied. See, I, this dating thing is a concern. It's just a Are real you, concern. Is that something you're nervous about? Yeah, very much. Yeah. You? Well, uh, two things. One is uh, Malia and Sasha are very sensible, so I, I trust them to make mm -hmm. good, good decisions. And the second thing is uh, I've got men with guns following them around all the time. <laughs> so that, that kind of makes me a little less nervous about it. Can I use this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to do this. Hey, this, 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 this is the main reason I ran for re-election. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I knew it was coming. I said, let me just project out. You know, and I'm, I'm going to have it covered for uh, for most of high school. That was Steve Harvey interviewing the president. You know, you know it was going to be Steve Harvey. You know it's going to be funny. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment. By tribute to former astronaut and senator John Glenn. That last apartment looked more like a tool shed. That's because it was a tool shed, dear. I thought I'd show you the less than desirable apartments first because your credit is less than acceptable. But no worries, plenty of apartments. Let's try this one. It's a broom closet. Don't be silly, dear. It was a broom closet. Now it's apartment 3AA. Potential landlords can and will check your credit before giving you a lease. Don't let your credit put you in a bad place. Go to controlyourcredit.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Treasury and the Ad Council. You take the family to the food court. Your wife and Pete head for tacos. You and Danny want Chinese. You look up at the menu. You look down to see what Danny wants. But you don't see Danny. Danny! Every parent knows that feeling. Imagine if you were actually abducted. To receive free Amber Alerts on your cell phone, go to wirelessamberalerts.org. A child is calling for help. Brought to you by the Ad Council. The First Amendment reads, The people shall not be deprived of their right to speak. The odds are the person you just heard is an African-American. Because African-Americans are twice as likely to suffer a stroke as white Americans. That's twice as likely a stroke could rob you of the freedom to speak your mind. Help beat the odds. Call 1-888-4-STROKE or go online to strokeassociation.org. Join the power to end stroke. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Our children will always outgrow us. But for the first time in generations, 
they may not outlive us. Over the last 25 years, the percent of overweight children has doubled, a problem that could be greatly reduced just by having a place to exercise. Right now, people are working hard to put parks and playgrounds where children will use them. Log on to earthshare.org today and find out how you can help. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. This is an ABC News special report. Good day. I'm Elizabeth Vargas in New York, and we're interrupting program to report the death of a true American hero. Legendary astronaut and later politician John Glenn has passed away at the age of 95. Glenn had been in failing health since suffering from a small stroke, and he had been hospitalized in his home state of Ohio for more than a week. In 2012, Glenn was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama, who noted that on the morning in 1962 that Glenn blasted into space, America stood still. ABC's David Wright has more on the incredible life of John Glenn. John Glenn later said as he hurtled through space that first time, one thought kept crossing his mind. that every part of this rocket was supplied by the lowest bidder. I guess I've looked at my whole life as being a sort of service to my country. But he also said there are times when you devote yourself to a higher cause than personal safety. The son of a plumber and a school teacher, Glenn was born and raised in Ohio, where he met and married his childhood sweetheart, Anne. In 1942, he quit college and enlisted, and as a highly decorated Marine Corps pilot, flew dozens of missions in the Pacific in World War II. In the Korean War, his co-pilot was Boston Red Sox legend Ted Williams. By the time he joined the space program in 1959, one of America's original astronauts, he was already a star. And he became the first American to orbit the Earth. He made three orbits and splashed down safely. At the height of the Cold War, and the space race where America was running behind, he was quite simply a national hero. In 1964, Glenn left the space program for politics. After two failed U.S. Senate bids, he finally won a seat in 1974, but he had his share of setbacks, too, including a failed run for the presidency in 1984. Three, two, one. Booster ignition and liftoff of Discovery with a crew of six astronaut heroes and one American legend. In 1998, 36 years after his first flight, he returned to space at age 77. He was still a sitting U.S. Senator. One thing I promised Annie the day we were married, uh, in addition to our wedding vows, of course, was that I would do everything I could to keep life from being boring. Boring his life was not. John Glenn was a pioneer and a public servant who put himself on the line time and again. Zero G and all is well, he said. For John Glenn and for the country he loved, it was an amazing ride. 
An amazing ride indeed, as David Wright just noted. Glenn had been married to his childhood sweetheart, Annie, for 73 years. They had two children and two grandsons. Glenn will be buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Once again, John Glenn, dead at the age of 95. We'll have full coverage of... The country pays its respects to an American legend, John Glenn. John Glenn was 95 years old and without any question, a legend. Glenn was the first American astronaut to orbit the Earth in 1962, his rocket ship blasting to these immortal words from mission control. Godspeed, John Glenn. His descent to Earth was a harrowing experience, as recreated in the movie The Right Stuff. <laughs> Glenn's mission in space is immortalized on these classic front pages, Glenn, a World War II and Korean War fighter pilot, first came to the public's attention when he appeared on the game show Name That Tune in 1957. Uh, what do you think of the Russian satellite, which is circling the Earth at 18,000 miles per hour? <laughs> well, to say the least, George, they're out of this world. He served in the U.S. Senate from Ohio for 24 years. In 1998, at age 77, he became the oldest man in history to ever fly into space. One reason for Glenn's exalted reputation was his devotion to his wife, Annie, who was afflicted with a severe stutter, as depicted in The Right Stuff. He's asking for you again. Vice President Johnson is nearby. Tell him no. This is believed to be his last public appearance when the Columbus, Ohio airport was renamed for him this year. Now the nation is mourning a great American. As soon as I left the hospital after a DVT blood clot, I sure had a lot to think about. What about the people I care about, including this little girl? And what if this happened again? I was given warfarin in the hospital, but wondered, was this the best treatment for me? So I asked my doctor, and he recommended Eliquis. Eliquis treats DVT and PE blood clots and reduces the risk of them happening again. Yes, Eliquis treats DVT and PE blood clots. Eliquis also had significantly less major bleeding than the standard treatment. Both made me turn around my thinking. Don't. It is my sad duty to announce the passing of John Glenn. John Glenn was one of the original seven astronauts of this country. All of them were characterized as having the right stuff. And if you knew any of them, that was certainly true. Uh, John Glenn was not only a pioneering astronaut, a great senator, uh, he was a first-class gentleman, and also he was a devoted husband and father. He leaves uh, behind Annie, his beloved, who always stood with him as he ventured into the unknown cosmos. And it was unknown because John was the first to go into orbit as an American. He paved the way for all the rest of us. And now at his passing, America is in the planning and the developing of the rockets that will take us, a human species, all the way to Mars. 
John Glenn was the pioneer. He was the one who paved the way. I was a little bit delayed getting the floor this afternoon because I was in tears, literally, when I heard the news about John. I think of my last long conversation with him just a few weeks ago. I'll speak more on the floor about him, but I, I came to the Senate with him. And I enjoyed traveling with him with the anonymity he gave me, as people said, there's Colonel Glenn. It wasn't Senator Glenn, it was Colonel Glenn. John was one of the best people I ever served with. And when I speak of what it was like coming here as a brand-new senator, every time I've been asked about that, Mr. President, talk about the fact I came here and was sworn in with John Glenn. Take it floor. Marine recruiting is based on two things. It's been, number one, do you want to serve your country? And number two, do you think you're good enough to join the best outfit? It attracts a different kind of person when you when you put that kind of standard on out as the main attraction in recruiting. I was in the middle of my junior year in college, and the Pearl Harbor occurred. And I had uh, just received my private pilot's license earlier that year, and so I knew where my uh, duty lay, and that was to go into the uh, military at that time. And I felt that the, the Marines were being tossed into some of the toughest combat in uh, early World War II, and they were acquitting themselves well, and uh, if I wanted to be part of the best, I'd better apply. All Marine pilots go through naval aviation training, and at that time, in the middle of World War II, uh, about halfway through advanced training, uh, you could apply if you wanted to to get your commission in the Marine Corps, and uh, that's what I did. After I was out of flight training, we trained for uh, was first sent to Cherry Point on the East Coast, but then to the West Coast, and joined a squadron there. But then we were training for the invasion of Japan, and then went back out in the Korean War. And that's where we worked as the as the Marine Air Ground Team, and it was a very close-knit uh, organization. There was always a, a special feeling of Marines supporting Marines on the ground, and that was very exacting. When I came back from the Korean War, I applied for test pilot training and got it. And uh, so I was at the Patuxent River, Maryland Naval Air Test Center doing test work on on uh, some of the new uh, Marine and Navy aircraft. And just as I was uh, about to be reassigned from my time period doing test work was when the space program was starting. The word astronaut was something new. We didn't even know there was such a word. There hadn't been that kind of word when I was a kid or, or growing up in Ohio. But uh, the... The space program was just starting, and when they put out their their uh, criteria for the type of people they wanted, why I, I seemed to have all the qualifications that they were looking for. My combat experience in the Marine Corps in the Pacific was a factor because they wanted people who had worked under stress and duress and, and had come through okay, and finally resulted in seven of us being uh, selected. Out of that seven, there were uh, three Air Force and uh, and three Navy and, and one Marine. And so uh, so I represented the Corps in that first group. Now, in this new area of space that we were going into, I used that same approach I'd had in the Marine Corps. 
in uh, in learning about every single system that you could learn about on the spacecraft. And where you thought there was some uh, problem with it, uh, suggest a change to that particular system, just as I had done on aircraft in, uh, in test flying. I was very proud to be able to participate in some of those early days and made the first uh, orbital flight for this country. Let's just say that my, my marine background and training and all gave me a, a dedication to trying this, this new area that we knew so little about. Uh, I wasn't behind anybody else in dedication, I know that. That kind of a dedication is something is just expected in the Marine Corps, and it becomes a way of life. And I think that is that's something that I uh, I had maybe was an edge going into this in the space program. I was still in the Marine Corps. I was in the Marine Corps, but assigned to NASA for spaceflight. So the same kind of dedication you have to the uh, to things in the Marine Corps, whether it's uh, uh, cooperative work in, in flying in a squadron or supporting the ground, or, or whatever you do there as part of a team, we were transferring that kind of, I was transferring that kind of background I'd had into the astronaut program, and I, I think it fit very, very well. I thought one of the greatest things you could ever do would be to run for, for public office. Never thought I'd ever be able to uh, do that myself, but uh, as it turned out, when I was leaving NASA, uh, decided that maybe that was something that I could do. Well, I did make it then, was elected, and uh, then served 24 years in the Senate. Was on the Armed Services Committee and, and worked closely with uh, people in the Marine Corps as well as the other services, of course, to see that we maintain the, the security, the forces that we needed. You're really required in the Senate to, to bring to bear your background, your experiences in dealing with everything that makes this country go. I guess it required some of that... Uh, Marine Corps induced drive to stick with some of those objectives and, and bring them through, but I'm, uh, I'm proud of that service. The Marine Corps was there at the beginning of this country and has been there every, in every time troops were needed, every time military force was needed, and provides that with a, the only organization with our country that has all the elements of combat in one unit, and it was formed to protect this country and uh, that's what Marines are proud of, and it's a proud heritage that uh, every Marine today wants to continue. Marine Corps tradition is something very special among military services, and it's very, very real. Uh, there's no military service has a longer, uh, illustrious combat record in representing this country and standing up for what this country uh, is uh, than, than the Marine Corps. First to fight is not just a slogan, it's, it's something that the Marine Corps is the most ready organization normally than we ever, than any other service. In fact, I think the Marine Corps is going to be more needed in the future even than it has been in the past, important as that role has been. Well, if anybody ever refers to themselves as an ex-Marine, I always correct them, and, and so do most other Marines. Because once you've been through Marine training and been part of the Marine experience, uh, you, uh, you know that it affects your life. And uh, it, uh, and you know what the other people you meet that have been in the Marine Corps, uh, you know what they've been through. You know what kind of training they've been through, and you know how they have shared some of these values of of, uh, of dedication to a unit and to your country, and doing the best you can. It's uh, semper fi. Uh, semper fi to the, what the Corps stands for, 
uh, in relationship to each other, in relationship to what the Corps does for the country. Finally tonight, remembering John Glenn, the Mercury astronaut and former U.S. Senator who died today at 95. We start with this look back. Godspeed, John Glenn. February 20th, 1962. Nine, eight. An Atlas rocket fired Friendship 7 into space. And over the next five hours, John Glenn's name was indelibly inscribed in history. The first American to orbit the Earth, circling the globe three times. Zero G, and maybe you'll find capsule is turning around. Oh, that view is tremendous. The Honorable John Glenn. It was still fresh in his mind half a century later. For many, many thousands of years, people had looked up and wondered, had been curious, about what was up there. And we must consider ourselves among the most fortunate of all generations, for we have lived at a time when the dream became a reality. John Glenn's time began in Ohio, where he was born and raised. He grew up to be a highly decorated Marine fighter pilot in World War II and Korea. And as a military test pilot, he set a transcontinental speed record in 1957. Then, space beckoned. That same year, the Soviet Union stunned the world with Sputnik, the first man-made satellite. More Soviet successes followed, while initial U.S. unmanned launches met with repeated failure. The Soviets also leaped ahead in manned flight with cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, making the first orbital flight ever in April 1961. Glenn was still training at that point. One of the first astronauts, the Mercury 7, he spoke of them at Cape Canaveral in 2012. They were the real team we put, uh, it was put together back in those days. And while uh, you know, we were competitors, boy, were we competitors to uh, try and get the different flights. Never was there anything any more tight than the brotherhood we had that supported each one of those flights. Glenn's moment came in early 1962 when he crammed his silver-suited frame into the tiny Friendship 7 capsule. We used to joke about the, the spacecraft. We said you didn't, climb, you didn't get into it, you actually put it on. It was more like putting on clothes. It was that small because the whole thing, if you, if you spread your arms out like that, the, uh, uh, you were touching both sides of the, of the spacecraft. People around the world watched, but few knew the danger unfolding above. The capsule's automated steering system jammed, and ground controllers worried the heat shield was tearing away on re-entry. Glenn's life depended on that shield, but he told Judy Woodruff in 2012 his job was to stay focused. You just keep right on working right on through it. And if something's going to happen, the worst thing you could do would be panicky in there. So uh, I just kept on working as we had trained, and everything worked out okay. Okay, does the capsule look like it's okay, over? Much more than okay. John Glenn returned to Earth an American hero, feted with parades and elaborate receptions. President John F. Kennedy presented him with a NASA Service Medal, and three days later, he addressed Congress. I'm only too aware of the tremendous honor that's being shown us at this joint meeting of the Congress today. This has been a great experience for all of us on the program and, and for all Americans, I guess, too. But I'm certainly glad to see that pride in our country and its accomplishments are not a thing of the past. The space program moved on, and so did Glenn. He resigned from NASA in 1964 and eventually entered politics. 
1974, he was elected to the U.S. Senate from Ohio as a Democrat and became chief author of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Act. In 1984, he made a run for the White House, but withdrew after four showings in the early Democratic primary. Ultimately, he served four terms in the Senate. Three, two, one. And in 1998, in his final months in office, he returned to space on board the shuttle Discovery. That earned him another first, at 77, the oldest person to fly into space. After his Senate years, Glenn and his wife Annie worked to promote civics education, establishing the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at Ohio State University in Columbus. But his abiding interest in space was never far away. The aging astronaut sharply criticized President George W. Bush's decision to phase out the space shuttle program. Two, one, zero, and liftoff, the final liftoff of Atlantis. The final flight took place in 2011, and Glenn voiced his views in his NewsHour interview the next year. We do not have an American spacecraft on which we can go into space. To get our people up there to the International Space Station to do the research it was built to do, and we spent over $100 billion on that, so we should have had a continuity of the program that let us build research, and the, the, the research we do up there is a benefit to everybody right here on Earth. We will present a gold medal on behalf of the United States Congress to the Honorable John Glenn. Late in life, he was still being honored receiving the Congressional Gold Medal in 2011, along with fellow astronauts Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, and Michael Collins. And in 2012, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honor. John Glenn lived out his final years in Ohio after suffering a small stroke. For more on the career and life of John Glenn, I'm joined by science correspondent Miles O'Brien, who came to know Glenn through his years of reporting on aviation. Miles, it's uh, the beginning of the end of an era. It is, Hari. Uh, you know, you can't help but look at a guy like that and say, one of the last of the great American heroes. This is a guy who, whatever he did, uh, he succeeded uh, to levels few of us could ever aspire to, and yet all the while was one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet, despite his relentless and competitive nature. That's a hard mix. Uh, and he managed to do it, and he managed to do it really right to the end. He never really quit. He never retired. He always had a mission. You got to know him personally. You even flew with him in your small plane? Yeah, I, I cooked up a scheme for a story. I had met him during the 1998 flight on the shuttle when they had the opportunity to cover him and have no less than Walter Cronkite as my co-anchor on CNN. I consider myself very lucky to have had that experience. But some years later, we were doing a story on technology and aviation, and I got the idea in my head that it would be kind of fun to uh, see what Senator Glenn thought about the technology. It happened to be in the aircraft I owned at the time. I flew it to Columbus, and I had John Glenn get in my airplane and fly with me. And I've got to tell you, Hari, I, I've never had a more nervous landing in my life. But I, as the term in aviation is, I greased it. And he was, he could not have been more complimentary to me. He was the nicest uh, passenger you could ever hope for, and yet the most intimidating at the same time. You know, he's almost a time capsule in a way of the relations between America and the world and what he meant to the space program, what he meant to aviation at the time, especially in the context of the Cold War. Absolutely, Harry. You know, when you think of NASA and what the space program is all about, it was, you know, kind of a, uh, a Cold War projection of soft power uh, of the United States. And he was the perfect poster boy for that. He was everything that we uh, was, was considered the ideal in this country, uh, small town ethics, uh, you know, 
handsome guy, the whole you know, really central casting kind of thing. Uh, he was the guy, somewhat at least, with some drama, depicted in the right stuff in, in the mid-'80s, sort of the, for lack of a better term, goody two-shoes of the Mercury 7. Uh, while the rest of them might have been out carousing late into the night, uh, he was with his you know, longtime wife, who actually he met uh, first in, in preschool, Annie, and uh, lived a much more quiet uh, experience in life. And he went on to serve after as well. He did indeed. You know, he, the, the chapters of his life are amazing. Uh, Marine Corps uh, fighter pilot in Korea with numerous uh, kills to his uh, record. Uh, set a, a cross-country, transcontinental, supersonic uh, record as a Marine uh, test pilot in the 50s. Well, goes on to be the Mercury 7. Then has this brief chapter as uh, the president of Royal Crown Cola, then gets into politics for 24 years, and then goes on to build this amazing public policy school at Ohio State University. Each chapter, he just rose to the absolute top level and made it always look effortless, at least as far as I could see. Yeah, and, and uh, even as we saw in the clips there, he was still advocating for a more active role in the space program. You know, when uh, George Bush announced the uh, retirement of the space shuttle, he, he was calling me a lot, and he was advocating in a very forceful and clear way for the United States still having the ability to carry its own astronauts to space. And he wasn't going to let that go. He was very upset about it. He was well into his 80s at that point, uh, but he, he was still in the game. All right, I don't know if we have footage or if it's a shot of you and him in a plane. Let's see if we can uh, show that to our audience as well. Well, while we're playing it, I've got to tell you one story I just heard, Hari. Uh, Annie Glenn, his beloved wife of more than 70 years, who is 96 and, and a bit frail, today we are told upon hearing the news, what did Annie Glenn do? She went to the supermarket to buy food because she is anticipating a lot of guests. Oh. So uh, that, that tells you a little something about uh, her and them. They, they were uh, an inseparable and wonderful pair and uh, he, um, you know, talk about a life well lived. Uh, what more can you say? Where, where, where did he go wrong? I can't think of it. All right. Miles over. As soon as I left the hospital after a DVT blood clot, I sure had a lot to think about. What about the people? From space to the U.S. Senate to Geraldo Rivera, he was 25 years in the U.S. Senate, almost 24. Uh, he, he had already, look at it this way, he had already auditioned heaven. He had already been up there, and then, uh, but what a wonderful, wonderful hero. I interviewed him a couple of times over the years. Uh, once I interviewed him about the Challenger disaster and whether or not they should have had ejection seats, and he, he gave me a really heartfelt answer, you know, about, about that. You just think, why didn't they have a way out? Mm -hmm. uh, and he said about weight, the weight of the aircraft, and, you know, there are other considerations. Interviewed him also about how we were doing nuclear conferences uh, and including countries like Iraq, uh, at the time still ruled by Saddam Hussein, in our civilian, uh, you know, uh, atomic energy conferences and symposiums, and they were getting, you know, our secrets from these uh, these uh, civilian uh, kinds of uh, uh, get-togethers. But he a wonderful, measured. You know, my uh, my in-laws are all from Ohio. He's a legend there, an icon there. A great American and uh, sorely missed. And you know, the, the, from my point of view, at, at my age, what I remember most is when he jumped out of the uh, uh, the airplane oh, and sure. went into space in his in his late 70s. That's I mean, right. 77 years old. I mean, imagine. Yeah. Well, oldest person to go into space. Yeah. yeah. And, and also he had a, a combat one. veteran, uh, Marine of 150 uh, combat, almost, almost 150 missions in uh, yeah. in World War II and Korea. Absolutely. Speaking of the military, Donald Trump. 
hiring three uh, three generals to be on his cabinet. So what do you far. think about that? So far, yeah. Well, you know, I've been uh, from 2001 to 2012, kind of one of the senior war correspondents around here, and I, I, I have to say that in my entire life, some of the most intelligent, competent, patriotic, uh, you know, effective leaders I have met have been in the military. Some of my best friends, I remember Ray Odierno sure. and, and John Campbell. Uh, John Campbell yep. started as a colonel when the war started. I watched him get uh, one star, two stars, three stars, four. David Petraeus. I met him, uh, you know, as he was bringing the 101st Airborne into Baghdad in 2003. He had two stars, watched him get a third star and then a fourth star, become a commander, uh, you know, win the surge, basically, take over in Afghanistan, then get to be director of the CIA before he... Uh he had his yeah, problem. but you know the, the there are those on the left who go, you know, he's packing his cabinet with these military guys setting himself up for a coup. That's nah, ridiculous. Of course, it is. Or if not a coup, then then an overwhelming emphasis on war or combat or engagement. Right. It's 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 also though about management. Yeah. It's also about competence, isn't it? I mean, why should that exclude someone? Mm -hmm. I mean, Generals Mattis and Kelly. My goodness, these are some yeah. of the best Americans out there. Why not? It is not an accident that they are all appointed to various civilian boards of directors. Mm -hmm. uh, they are they get big CEO type jobs. Uh, they are exactly the kind of people that we want in that leadership. And remember Colin Powell uh, in uh, in Bush 40, uh, 43's uh, administration. Yep. Then you had uh, uh, Alexander Haig before that in Nixon and and the Reagan administration. I mean uh, we have. Classically, had we had generals as presidents, Dwight Eisenhower, Ulysses S. Grant, and, and so forth. You know, I just think that why not tap the best amongst right. us? I, I always felt that I was trying to catch up to colleagues who had, like Pete, had actually served. Even though I had around soldiers and sailors and airmen and uh, Marines and Coast Guard and all the rest of all my career to not actually wear the uniform and go through the discipline. And I think that Donald Trump also had some of that same insecurity. Uh, you know, he went to military school as I did, uh, uh, you know, so I had some experience in that regard. But then to, uh, to not have served and then to be in the company of those who have given so much and sacrificed so much, I always felt a bit insecure about it. I, I am delighted. You know, even uh, President Obama had uh, Eric Shinseki, remember? the general who uh, was a skeptic on uh, whether or not yeah, a bunch of generals Saddam had uh, fired him. Yeah, well, yeah, that uh, uh, Dennis Blair, the admiral. Yeah. Uh, so, he had uh, James Clapper, the national security. Look, let's got to complain about it. Can you tell if the surfaces in this kitchen are crawling with bacteria that could cause chronic arthritis? Listen. Can't, can you? You can't see it either. Wash surfaces, utensils, and hands frequently with soapy water while preparing food, especially when handling raw meats or eggs. Raw food may contain bacteria that can make you very sick or worse. One in six Americans will get sick from food poisoning this year, and roughly 3,000 will die. But you can keep your family safer by cleaning with soap and water as you go. Learn more about this and other important information. Check your steps at foodsafety.gov. That's 
foodsafety.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Well, that's going to do it for yours truly until. The viewers' opinions of Nature Talk are not necessarily the views of Talk you, Jam Radio Productions, and its sponsors. This has been Nature Talk, a public affairs program. It airs Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Be sure to join me each and every Sunday for Nation Talk. Want to do before I before I leave? I want to say thank you all for for tuning in and to let you know that we'll be on next week. Christmas we will not be on. We may we may. Uh, I'm not sure. We probably will do a program for New Year's. So we we may do it, and again we might we might do it the first year. Same thing with Quiet Some Inspiration. We haven't decided yet, but be sure to tune in to Nation Talk. Jalen, God bless you. Have a wonderful and blessed week.